1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CIS Podcast, Cybersecurity, Where You Are. My name is Sean Atkinson, and I'm joined today by a number of guests. And our topic today is uh, ransomware and some work done by the Ransomware Task Force. And we have members of a report that was published through that particular task force with respect to defensive capability in the space. So without further ado, let me have... um, our guests uh, introduce themselves. Uh, Valicia, why don't we start with you, if you could uh, give us a little bit of your background, please.
2: Sure, Sean. Uh, thanks. So I'm Valicia Stochetti. I'm a senior cybersecurity engineer for the CIS controls team. Uh, I've previously worked on the MSI SEC and EISAC as their uh, computer emergency response team manager. And my background is in digital forensics and instant response.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Felicia. Welcome. Uh, Megan, uh, if you could give us uh, a little bit of your background, please.
0: Thanks, Sean. I am Megan Stiefel. I am the Chief Strategy Officer at a nonprofit organization called the Institute for Security and Technology. We work to outpace emerging uh, security threats presented through and by technology, um, which led to us convening in the fall of winter of 2020 and early part of 2021. A multi-stakeholder process called the Ransomware Task Force,
1: which I was pleased to co-chair. Fantastic, thank you, Megan. And last but not least, Davis.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, my name is Davis Hake. I'm a co-founder for Resilience Insurance. Uh, before that, I was spent about a decade in the federal government, working across the the Hill and cyber policy at Homeland Security and in the White House on the National Security Council with Megan, actually.
1: Fantastic. Excellent. So Davis, um, I'll start out with really a general question. And, and the question is, is, why is ransomware at this point in time so prevalent, thus requiring a need for a blueprint uh, for defensive strategy?
3: Yeah. Thanks very much, Sean. So uh, IST uh, has been a wonderful partner uh, with us uh, from some early days on this problem um, in standing up the ransomware task force Uh, just a couple years ago uh, when this problem really started to explode. um, We saw hints of it start to hit in in around 2018 in the insurance industry. Back then, you know, it was more of a nuisance, right? Um, There were kind of low amounts that were asked for ransoms. Um, It was really only targeting organizations that had low cyber hygiene um, but very quickly, we saw the adversaries realize the profitability of this, this criminal model. And, you know, now today, uh, they have really ransomware as a service type operations. They've, they've broken the, the whole um, attacks down into access brokers that go in and then others that, that cause the extortion, Some really serious and advanced operations uh, have gotten a hold of this. And, and as this, too, as a market has developed, um, the prices have gone up and the aggressiveness has gone up, too. And that was the same in the cyber insurance industry. We started to see these attacks grow in cost and damage and then really explode in 2019. Um, and that was one of the reasons why, you know, as a, as a cyber insurance provider, um, you know, we, we worked with IST and then brought in uh, Center for Internet Security and a number of other companies and also uh, pri- public sector entities like DHS to really start to think strategically about the adversaries are evolving. Um, they're growing their market. How do we, as defenders, start changing the economics of this problem um, and start coordinating a little bit better? And, and I think the blueprint is one of the the most tangible results uh, that really come came out of the, um, the the work that we've all done together.
1: Um, can you hear me now? I'm back. Sorry, apologies. I'll... You got it. Absolutely, Davis. No, absolutely correct. Um, the blueprint, as, as mentioned, providing such great operational level capability and understanding to build a defensive uh, capability in in the space, um, it is very important. Uh, again, as you mentioned, you know we, we've seen ransomware become. Uh, really, an an industry into itself. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, ransomware is a service, and it becomes so prevalent uh, that uh, action is needed. And and Megan, as we talk about that action, I wonder if you could give us an overview of the both the ransomware task force and IST's um, capability in that space, the need to build a task force uh, to understand this particular threat.
0: Sure. So the the role of IST. Yeah, was to serve in the first instance as the convener of this task force, and the reason we felt there was a need for the task force was the growing uh, scale and scope of ransomware that we saw evolve, particularly as uh, the world responded to the pandemic. As Davis mentioned, uh, you know, even in the in the mid 2010s, um, you know, we saw ransomware as a problem, but it was, as he said, I agree, it was a nuisance, and and then as we began to move people to homes where they were in potentially unsupported environments or less supported environments. Um, certainly, malicious actors, among other things, took advantage of those um, that positioning and the weaknesses that it uh, potentially created or made more apparent um, to deploy their ransomware as a service tools across uh, the globe, really, but particularly looking at the impacts that it had on critical infrastructure and our concern that the scale and scope, particularly as it pertained to critical infrastructure, but not exclusively, presented a national security risk. And so we convened uh, this task force that was multi-stakeholder in nature, as I mentioned, included participants from over 60 organizations, whether it was uh, software providers, uh, cloud providers, cybersecurity companies, representatives from not just the United States government, but including the United States government, um, a number of non-for-profits and we worked over a period of time in on, uh, about four months in four working groups, uh, really to look at, take a holistic approach to this threat and to identify areas and actions uh, where uh, specific kind of 10, 10% solutions could lead to a meaningful change. And those four kind of broad areas were around uh, prevention, which is where this work uh, comes from, response, deterrence, and disruption. And um, So in the end, we ended up with 48 specific recommendations uh, in a report that was launched in April of 2021. We were pleased to find that one year later, uh, we did a look back in May of 2022 and found that 88% of those recommendations had seen some degree of progress with, I believe, 25% seeing significant progress. And I think the last thing I would say on that is um, we know that ransomware is a symptom of a broader problem. And so I think one of the great benefits of, of working with um, my, my fellow podcasters, but also the members of the working group and members of the broader task force is to recognize that, that deploying and employing this blueprint can assist in not only reducing the, uh, an organization's ransomware risk, but really a, a risk to, to broader cybersecurity uh, threats as a whole.
1: Oh, Absolutely. No, I think it absolutely lays a foundational approach where um, it's not only addressing, as you mentioned, across a number of elements of both protection and the ability to uh, strengthen an organization to increase resiliency, uh, but it really is tactile in a way that is achievable. You know, it's not these high level objectives, it's these understanding the technology and being able to apply requisite control uh, and to Davis's point some of the operationalization of that capability that then helps and assists in, in really reducing the overall risk and I, I ultimately you know it's that risk proposition you know um, you know what's your appetite in this space uh, and then the tolerance in order to either not reflect on the requisite control uh, and in some cases before the report itself it may have been well, Where do I start? What's my appropriate approach to managing this underlying risk? But providing this information, I think, gives a a very clear description of both implementation and then prioritization of those respective controls uh, to build, uh, as you say, resistance uh, and uh, uh, creates a capability um, that really, uh, I think, ultimately mitigates that risk to a point where um, there's a, an element of confidence in the the probability uh, again exists, like like uh, Davis had mentioned that there's an underlying industry. There's there's a reason why this continues to be successful. Um, but doing this uh, again across a number of different industries, as you know, we could mention small to medium sized businesses. We could mention critical infrastructure, uh, and taking these approaches is to uh, really protect those uh, either in need or just needing an element of direction uh, to make sure that they're doing it appropriately uh, with the right level of control. Because in some cases, you know, we could look at ransomware and say, uh, I'm just going to, you know, throw all the money in the world and resources at it to prevent it from occurring. Where respectfully, it's not about just resources and money. It's about judicious approaches to understanding the threat and mitigating those uh, respective actions through uh, controls that, that really make sense and uh, uh, and can mitigate to a point where it's not just about the uh, exposure, it's about creating a resiliency through uh, really formalizing an approach to close those gaps and get everybody to a, a greater level uh, in, in uh, you know based on my review of the document to a, a greater level of maturity in cybersecurity control. now I think ransomware is the impetus. It is the stimuli that uh, really brings awareness to organizations where it's, uh, you know, this uh, far-flung, you know, Hollywood-type hacking uh, scenario. This is every day. You know, we we see it and we've got a number of use cases. We've got a number of stories that really um, show uh, why this is so potentially dangerous and such a threat. Um, but there is action that can be taken uh, that prevents it and mitigates it, uh, that underlying risk. Excellent. Thank you, Megan. Uh, I really appreciate that. So Felicia in terms of our engagement through both the ransomware task force, uh, one of the elements, uh, and obviously uh, close to my heart, is the uh, CIS controls. we where- Where's the benefit of utilizing the CIS controls to be part of this blueprint uh, for ransomware defense? Yeah,
2: so I mean, you had mentioned um, small businesses, and also within those small businesses, so we know that the state and local governments are really sometimes the hardest hit by ransomware, um, and often because they're very resource constrained and you know don't have the staffing, time, or money um, to implement those controls. So. The other problem, I think, is that there's too much guidance out there. It can be overwhelming for a lot of organizations to figure out where to go, who to turn to. Um, I mean, everywhere you look, there's a, there's a new ransomware document coming out, um, which is, I'm sure they're all great, but it can just be overwhelming. I think Tony does it as the fog of more. Um, but the blueprint was really created out of a need to develop that clear, actionable um, framework for ransomware mitigation and response And um, the reason why I love the Blueprint, one, because it's underpinned by the CIS controls. Um, And the CIS controls really are a set of best practices that are defending against the most common attacks. And it's not just something nice to say, right? It sounds great, but um, it's actually been backed by data. It's presented in the CIS community defense model we put out last year. And we know that implementation group one, or IG one as we call it, comprise comprises those actions that every organization should take and, and do first. Uh, and it actually provides over 70% coverage of attack techniques that are specifically related to ransomware. The other thing that I really like about the controls is that it offers practical, easy-to-follow guidance. So it really helps organizations of any size start following a framework. Um, so that's that's another benefit to the group brand. You know, I think that you know, for organizations that really just need to focus on the basics, this is a great place to start. Ransomware, as we you know, is not going anywhere. Um, when I first entered this industry, it was interesting because ransomware was at peak. Then Emotech took over and, and rampaged for a few years, and then ransomware is now wrapping back up. Um, so it, it's really interesting to see those trends. But the techniques stay the same for the most part. Um, so the, the blueprint really just kind of helps break that down and organizes it by things like foundational or actionable safeguards. Uh, and then also follows in the cybersecurity framework. So we can, you know, use identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, that whole um, series of actions to kind of have a starting point where to go.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think it just, uh, you know, like I hearken to with, uh Multiple podcasts about the application of the CIS controls. Uh, again, in combination with other frameworks. That that's the whole point. You know, we've we all map to something different, but we can um, really come back and understand the practicality. I love the way you phrase that of the CIS controls as as they're applied to requisite technology. And it leads us down a path of success because it's not just ephemeral through uh, building an ideal, but it's actually a technical capability that, uh, again, builds a strength uh, and an underlying control framework that, um, you know, it integrates that resiliency capability. And then it's an actualization of risk to a point where we, we can see acceptance or we can at least see it's mitigated to a point where we're comfortable. As an organization, in terms of both uh, the resources required, but then also the repeatability, and then the understanding that that control being set um, creates elements of resiliency that we can, you know, rely upon uh, in order to be preventative. And I think when we look at the tactics, techniques, um, you know, as you mentioned, and we look at uh, implementation group one and and the number of controls that affect ransomware's you know, underlying capability within any organization from an infection standpoint, it's uh, truly a testament to the approach is um, when you do this and you're protecting against ransomware, it's not just ransomware, right? It's a whole plethora of threats to an organization, but under the moniker of uh, ransomware, really then helps because, you know, as I mentioned, I think there's nothing better than a really good use case that uh, hits home with either executives or organizations or small to medium businesses, critical infrastructure that says this is a threat we need to take seriously. And it, it's um, it, it's something we can actualize uh, through uh, dedicated and, as you mentioned, uh, controls that do have a measure and are shown to be effective um, with respect to ransomware. Fantastic. Davis, I actually um, wanted to discuss some of the impact from the cyber insurance side of the house. So where we see the requirement, where the blueprint provides what I'm going to call here, uh, and using some vernacular from the uh, report itself, strengthening cyber insurance. Just wonder if you could give us some feedback on what you've seen through the insurance industry as ransomware has become more prevalent. And then where the blueprint comes into play to then help in terms of either underwriting or, or being part of a uh, a requirement to to make sure you know we're we're doing the right things and that also the cyber insurance industry is fighting this rise in this criminal enterprise uh, type situation. Any thoughts in that space, Davis?
3: Yeah, yeah, Sean. Great question. So, you know, as I mentioned, right, ransomware and the actors have not only matured, uh, but also, you know, dramatically increased uh, the amount of extortion and the amount of damage they do. So, in the you know normal ransomware today, uh, you will see a, a double or sometimes triple extortion, which means from an insurance standpoint you're not just covering the loss from the, the cryptocurrency ransom that goes out the door immediately, um, but you're also dealing with uh, initial threat or data breach or another extortion. That's the double. Or you'll have the extortionist go to your users or your clients and threaten them. So that's sort of the triple extortion. And on top of that, what we've actually found from looking at the claims is that the largest cost from ransomware incidents actually comes from the business interruption. Um, side of the business. This is why we talk to clients uh, not just about their insurance, but really this idea of, of building their cyber resilience such that if they do get hit, they can recover quickly and keep their own impact low um, from actually dealing with the uh, restoration of backups or um, you know, potentially what, what they'd have to do to um, upgrade their systems and ensure the adversary is kicked out. Uh, when we look at trying to underwrite against this, um, you know, it's racing a very determined adversary. Right. And we don't have perfect information. Um, insurance is not an audit. Right. Insurance is designed to transfer risk away from a company. And it's a very specific tool to do that. Right. And, you know, there's there's a cost for every risk. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty famous. We joke in the insurance industry. Right. Like, you know, Will Smith insured himself before he went skydiving, I think. Um, things like that. Right. And so insurance doesn't always set a specific requirement to get insurance. But what insurance can do is it can financially motivate you to say, look, if your maturity is, is at the right level, you are going to get the risk transfer uh, that's profitable for your business. That's a good deal, right? And that's the lever that we in the insurance industry can use with our insureds to really drive better cyber hygiene. Now, you know, while our, our underwriters are amazing, uh, amazingly good at, at working to judge these risks, you know, most often uh, underwriters across the industry are not technical experts, right? And so they're actually dealing with the same type of issues that you see maybe uh, risk managers or CFOs or, or CEOs deal with when they look at uh, trying to ask questions about how secure are we against ransomware. Um, so across the industry, you know, there's often best practices that underwriters will share, this works, that works. But where we really saw a, a unique difference that especially we could leverage the blueprint for was to take that set of engineering standards, like uh, Valicia was just saying, CIS does. And this is why, you know, frankly, we chose to partner with CIS on this effort, because they have that data-backed set of almost building codes that we could choose from. And then what the group did, and what was really special about this uh, whole effort that Megan put together is that we drew upon experts uh, from the insurance industry and the claims data we had seen, we drew upon cybersecurity companies that supported us, and we drew upon CIS's own experts to then prioritize those building codes and say, look, you know, where should your first dollar go? We all agree that you have to eventually get all these things. But let's assume that, you know, like everybody else in the world, uh, you've got a small budget, uh, you have an overworked staff, and nothing you do will be perfect. So where do you start first? And and that was really the differentiation that we had heard from the task force was really needed. There are lots of guides, as Valicia said, about ransomware, and they all have really good advice. Um, But none of them had had that same prioritization and that direct correlation back to a non-technical executive, uh, and this is where we're really excited from the resilience standpoint to help promote this and, and share it across the industry. Um, you know, the way insurance works, it's a marketplace, right? So our view as a company is that it does no good if we are the only ones uh, that are, are underwriting this risk well. We think the whole industry uh, has to raise their own bar, and then it's going to drive better hygiene with the clients too.
1: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think really it's um, the, the way I kind of atone to it, Davis, is, is that it's everybody's responsibility, right? The only way we're going to get there is by doing it um, uh, together in a lot of cases. And I I think that's the, the great thing about the report it is, is bringing a community of experts together to really assess uh, and understand the problem and then build uh, a clear, actionable framework that uh, allows organizations to approach this um, in a considered way. Uh, and it really then, uh, like you say, uh, the, the repercussions of doing that consideration really then help uh, organizations uh, in combination. Where you see one organization with success, you know, in some cases becomes a competitive advantage, that we've done all of this. Here's our resiliency and others will follow suit. Uh, Because it's uh, together that we're going to do and really mitigate overall uh, the effectiveness of ransomware uh, as uh, really as industries uh, together through this approach. So uh, great thoughts. Thank you, Davis. I I really appreciate that. Uh, Megan, with the report itself... um, How would you recommend leaders within organizations strategically use this report to either uh, identify the underlying risk or require their uh, operations to move to a point where they've implemented uh, both the blueprint uh, and uh, then have repeatable control processes? What would you recommend there from a strategy perspective?
0: Well, I think hopefully leaders are as you said, using this as a, as a resource, as a way to both begin or, or evolve a dialogue with their teams with respect to the, the threat this is intended to reach in the first place, which is the risk of ransomware, but also um, as a potentially a resource also to have conversations with their suppliers and uh, their, if they're outsourcing some of their security services to use the, the blueprint as a reference to say, uh, you know, look, this was developed and established by by uh, a set of recognized experts. Um, how are we doing on this? Or how are you doing on this? And and what else is necessary in order for us to uh, fully implement these resources? And I think the third piece I would say is that it, as it stands, but I think what, one of the places we would like to take this effort in the near or medium term is to think about how we might use this as a way to measure um, progress. Um, so one way to measure progress might be to say, Oh, we only had, uh, we were only actually implementing 13 of these 40 controls. And so our goal is to think about working our way to, to 40 over an appropriate period of time, you know, as, as others on this podcast have noted, not often can we do everything right at once. And so thinking carefully and, and critically about which of the next pieces of this, we do think though that, um, you know, getting to 40 is, is the goal, but at least getting to some is, is the nearest, nearest term objective. So, um, it's kind of a, it's an internal measurement, um, or kind of process guide. It is an external uh, reference guide and it hopefully can be used as a way to, to identify and articulate and document progress, um, which is one of the key challenges that that I think everybody recognizes teams on the cybersecurity side of organizations face, right? It seems like it's a cost center. How can you show that it's it's effective? Okay, we didn't have a breach, but does what does that mean? And so, there I think is an opportunity to use this resource for that purpose as well.
1: Oh, definitely. No, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned, it really approaches an element of both implementation and that re- return on the underlying security investment as an approach for both resources, and then adoption of, uh, respectively, the you know as many of the forty. Uh, again, I think over time, as you see maturity, uh, organizations will identify gaps and weaknesses and uh, and their greatest risks, as it were, with respect to the controls, and and build a capability in that space that. Uh, helps increase resistance and then also uh, helps um, build a capability that uh, really purports to um, a better underlying and a better understanding of security posture and bringing that awareness. I think that's the critical point that you mentioned as well, Megan, Uh, really multiple points that you mentioned. It is bringing awareness not only internal to the organization, but this also reflects externally. Uh, and when we think of uh, the supply chain and the flow down requirements that we have um, throughout the, the life cycle of where we fit into an underlying business model, it, it's critically important that we show and flow those requirements and understand security posture. It's all good to be you know secure ourselves. But if we're not doing this as a community, as I, as I mentioned before, and now we've got directly into supply chain security. Uh, that really takes us to the next level where we make sure that we're seeing security controls adopted throughout the life cycle of any product or service that we're providing. And those providing services to us are, you know, uh, keeping their end of the bargain. In a lot of cases, you know, it reflects on other um, breaches that we've seen where it was, well, it wasn't our infrastructure that was the initial vector of compromise. It was the third party who had not taken security controls as seriously, allowed access through, you know their integration into our environment, and that was the initial phase um, of uh, really infiltration into our networks and systems. That ultimately, you know, we bear the brunt of It's uh, in a lot of cases the third parties may uh, may be amiss, where larger organizations are then held responsible, and uh, you know have to take on the requisite penance projects for uh, underlying. Uh, breaches in this case, especially with ransomware, you know, being uh, that prevalent in the space, uh, critical element. So, uh, absolutely, thank you, Megan. I, re- I appreciate that thought and also how it affects supply chain security too. Felicia, want to reflect on for organizations um, what best practices, recommendations would you have for where should they start? So they've got the report. Strategically, they're aligned uh, from Megan's point, reflected internally uh, from an operational perspective. Um, what recommendations do you have for organizations to start this process of both understanding and implementation uh, of the required controls?
2: Yeah, so I think I would say that you know starting small and then growing from there is probably key. You don't want to overwhelm yourself by trying to move mountains when you can only move molehills. You know, create your policies and your processes first, and then that kind of sets the stage for the actions that that need to come next. Um, I think the other thing, too, is that, you know, control number one, which is inventory of, um, enterprise assets, which is previously called hardware and the controls. And then number two is inventory of software. These two things are critical before you start doing anything else in uh, in the blueprint. You really need to know where your systems are, what kind of software you're using before you can go and actually implement defenses to protect them from ransomware. Um, and the thing too, I, I think for small businesses is you know, don't think that anything is out of the realm of possibilities, right? So the Blueprint offers, I think, over 100 free and and paid tools as options. And that needs to be considered, right? So if your budget is really small, then then you need to look potentially into a free tool. If your budget is decent, then maybe you can afford to do a paid tool. Um, But I think the worst thing is is just sitting there thinking, oh, you know, nothing can happen to me because I'm a small business and they don't really care about me because I think that that's the, the farthest thing from the truth. And, and I'm sure everyone on this uh, podcast would probably agree with that because the, you know, it's not necessarily just the large organizations like the, you know, pipeline and, um, casillas of the world. It's, it's the small organizations that are also at risk. And the problem is that if they don't implement defenses, they can be the hardest hit more so than a large company, sometimes even putting them out of business. So it, um, It really, you know, kind of goes without saying it's not a a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Um, And it it sounds cliche, but it's very true.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely right. And that's often, um, you know, the the adage that we follow is uh, it's got to be prepared for uh, these threats. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's uh, again, not a matter uh, of if, but when uh, really resonates, uh, you know, through my organization here at CIS is one of the things you know we're always um, looking to. It is um, making sure that we've prepared in a way that we feel confident and comfortable that we've mitigated risk to the point that uh, allows us, um, you know, those elements of um, building resiliency and uh, then approaching the controls both from a governance and risk perspective but also making sure that they're effective. And again, that goes through continuous testing, but it's also refreshing the underlying threat knowledge in order to make sure that we're looking at tactics, techniques, Um, you know, uh, we've just seen released, uh, you know, zero day vulnerability in uh, on-prem Microsoft exchange. You know, the, the landscape is so dynamic and changing all the time that any one of these particular threats can be a vector, can be part of a ransomware type exercise or threat where they use you know, infiltration methods, and then on the back end, the payload from a ransomware uh, delivery mechanism uh, is secondary uh, within the environment. So it's combinations of those types of tactics and techniques uh, that are important for us to understand. So as we uh, come down to concluding uh, our podcast, uh, a couple of questions for each of the panelists that I just want to reflect on one. Um, you know, the future of the ransomware test force from your perspective and and kind of the future where you see um, ransomware and this particular threat environment moving to. Davis, I wonder if you, you've got any thoughts in that space as, as to that future, uh, both from the, the test force perspective as well as what you're seeing in the uh, threat environment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we track the threat uh, extremely closely. Uh, we have a, a dedicated threat intel team Um, with a lot of folks from both public and and private sector service. Uh, And we see, you know, dips in the number of claims and the activity. Um, We also see, you know, rising efforts, too. But overall, uh, we do not see this threat going away. Uh, It's far too profitable. Um, And unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of the consequences on the law enforcement side um, are not yet there. Uh, they're, they're out of the reach of, of a lot of the, the victim countries um, that get hit. So, you know, I think that really the answer here uh, is that we build off of this excellent base that IST and, and CIS and, and others have done with the ransomware task force to really coordinate on our side and try and change the economics of this. Right. And so if you look at it from a business perspective, uh, like like the adversaries do, we've got to make it uh more and more expensive on them uh, to, to get new victims, to get new customers, right? And we do that by raising the maturity uh, of those right now that, that are their victim base. Uh, we do that by imposing other types of costs uh, on them. And we do that by better coordinating on our side, which is, is another effort that we have looked extensively at, uh, is how do we coordinate with law enforcement better on, on issues around payments, um, on issues around intelligence, Um, And how can we encourage uh, our insureds uh, to also implement some of the best practices that we see in in the data from efforts like the like the blueprint um, and invest in those efforts and make it easy for them to invest in them. Um, So I certainly see this just as the beginning of the ransomware task force. Um, We're very heartened to hear the Biden administration take this threat seriously. You know, this is I've been working on on cybersecurity issues for a decade. And they've always been uh, of critical importance, but it's never really been a Main Street issue. We've been lucky it's been a bipartisan issue, um, and I think it will continue to be a bipartisan issue. But it hasn't really hit Main Street like ransomware has. And we talked about who the victims are, right? Our insureds are our middle market manufacturers, um, utilities, school districts, uh, regional banks. These are the guys who are just getting pummeled by by ransomware because they have money to steal, uh, and it's hard for them to also make sometimes the necessary investments. Um, and that's why a lot of the work around prioritization and the blueprint is so critical, right? If you can't do everything, what should you do first? Um, so, you know, I'm really thankful for the leadership that IST, uh, and especially from Megan um, and CIS uh, for getting this effort going. And we're looking forward to, to keeping this effort going and, and doubling down.
1: Absolutely, Davis. couldn't agree more. Uh, Megan, uh, over to you for both the future of the Ransomware Task Force and and other initiatives in this space.
0: Thanks, uh, Sean. So I would obviously agree and appreciate Davis's remarks. Um, As I noted, looking at, uh, particularly with respect to the blueprint, how can we raise awareness around it? How can we support organizations in implementing uh, the guidance it offers? both domestically, but but as some other work that we've done in the task force has found, you know, while we don't see ransomware all the time now in headlines uh, regarding victims in the United States, there are uh, the the scale and scope continues to pace, particularly uh, in previously a kind of immune, if you will, or probably more like under the radar countries. Um, so incidents in Costa Rica and Peru are are among those that we might point to to say this is a problem that, that remains. Um, so we think the blueprint can also be a resource uh, and an intent to, to raise awareness around it um, externally. So thinking about international uh, offerings, um, I think too, looking at, um, we continue to work to engage pr- providers whose tools can assist organizations, uh, tools tools, or other sor- service offerings can assist organizations in employing and implementing the blueprint and, you know, uh, every Every cybersecurity, probably technical policy participants dream of, of of being able to demonstrate and measure success or impact, I think, is is probably a lofty goal, but one we might be able to achieve. Um, with respect to some other work in the task force, um, you know, Davis has kind of alluded to uh, another recommendation from the broader report, which is to say that we really need to identify other levers to support disruptive efforts. Uh, and that really relies upon... Um, close cooperation and collaboration between public and private sectors. And there are a number of key pieces that can support that collaboration, including the sharing of ransomware data and incidents. Um, And so we've been working to support CISA in its efforts to implement uh, recent requirements under legislation that passed CERCEA for those, or depending on how one pronounces it specifically, um, so we're looking at reporting requirements, also trying to work through that effort as well to support voluntary sharing of ransomware-related data. Um, in addition, we're thinking about um, the cryptocurrency ecosystem and how uh, we can work to identify potential areas uh, that are actual information gaps, either uh, among private sector entities or among private sector entities and the government or you know, for the government itself. and And considering whether those gaps can be met with voluntary practices that could be further um, encouraged and incentivized or if potentially there's a need to reconsider the, those gaps um, with the current threat environment in mind and identify appropriate tools that could be leveraged to close them. Yeah. So those are just a few things uh, we continue to press forward on and um, we really appreciate the partnership of all of the Blueprint Working Group members in bringing this effort forward and look forward to continuing to work with them and other ransomware task force members to really put a nail in this threat.
1: Absolutely. Fantastic. And thank you, Megan. Uh, again, the, the leadership here and the uh, the blueprint and the direction and the future uh, is fantastic. And again, building a community uh, to bring in uh, representative resources and understand and uh, strive to fix the underlying problem, uh, as you mentioned. Absolutely fantastic work. Um, but over to you, Valicia. Um, You know some of the future that you see in terms of uh, both ransomware at the operational level, plus the implementation of control and, and management of this underlying risk. Any thoughts there for the future and what you've been seeing?
2: Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's pretty clear it's not going away. The threat will will always be there. Um, no matter what form it takes uh, or shape it takes moving forward, that's a, a different uh, story because, you know, as we have extortion and, and data exfiltration and all, all sorts of new things in the past couple of years have been developing, uh, which kind of brings a, another crease in the uh, layer of fabric, if you will, um, for complexity. But I think that for the control side, I mean, obviously, we're, we're super happy to collaborate with IST and Megan, her team, and, and all of the other members of the task force that we have so far. Um, for the control side, I think that we, you know, just need to make sure that we're keeping up to date with the latest threats, including other th- threats other than ransomware. And then also, you know, making sure that the controls that we're putting forth are still in alignment with defending against those threats, no matter what they are. Um so that's, that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, trying to answer the, the harder questions of the world, right? So questions around tooling and how much does it cost and, and things of that nature, because as, you know, these small businesses may not have any idea what it costs to procure a specific tool for, you know, inventory asset management or, or something of, the, of that caliber. And so having those answers to those questions will be helpful for them to try and convince upper leader uh, upper management that they need to actually have those defenses in place um, in order to protect their networks. Because it's easy to say, you know, I, I know that if we get hit by ransomware, it's going to be a $50,000 cost to recover from it. Um, but it's not so easy just to say, give me $50,000 to implement defenses, right? Leadership is going to want to know why. They're going to want proof and um, some data back by that. So, Hopefully with the products that we put out in controls now help, su- help supplement the blueprint work so far and um, and just make it a better product as we move forward.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Felicia. And thank you to everyone, uh, all the esteemed guests on the podcast today. Such great work. We'll obviously make links available to all the resources identified here uh, and really understand and, and represent the, uh, the need Uh, for the protection and the risk reduction in this space uh, is really awareness at all levels within an organization and throughout industry verticals. So with that, we'll conclude for today. Uh, Again, I want to thank our uh, guests and also uh, to the audience to recommend to make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single podcast. And with that, I'm Sean Atkinson. Thank you very much. Thank you for
0: listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.